European Heart Journal Issued a Glance Volume 44, Issue 24 Focus Issue Heart Failure and Cardiomyopathies By Editor-in-Chief Professor Filippo Crea Read to you by Morgan Bryan Challenges and Opportunities in the Management of Acute Heart Failure and Cardiac Amyloidosis This focus issue on heart failure, or HF, and cardiomyopathies contains a great debate entitled Great Debate in Patients with Decompensated Heart Failure Acetazolamide in Addition to Loop Diuretics is the First Choice by Key Opinion Leaders. Johann Bauersachs from the Hanover Medical School in Germany provides an introduction. He notes that the treatment of acute heart failure, or AHF, remains challenging. Luckily, in 2022, three seminal trials on medical treatments to relieve congestion additive to loop diuretics were published. In patients with AHF and volume overload in the ADVOR trial, IV application of the carbonic anhydrase inhibitor, azetazolamide, for three days in addition to IV loop diuretics, led to more efficient decongestion and higher cumulative urine output and natriuresis. The chlorotic trial demonstrated that the addition of hydrochlorothiazide to IV loop diuretic therapy improved the diuretic response in patients with AHF, although there was no significant difference in patient-reported dyspnea. In a novel design using a win ratio as the primary endpoint, the EMPULSE trial randomized patients with acute de novo or decompensated HF after stabilization to empagliflozin or placebo. After 90 days, a clinical benefit occurred significantly more often in patients treated with empagliflozin versus placebo. Also, total mortality and HF readmissions were reduced. Furthermore, in a sub-analysis, all decongestion-related endpoints such as weight loss, hemoconcentration and clinical congestion score, dyspnea, orthopnea and fatigue were favourably affected by the addition of empagliflozin to furosemide. The most important question arising from Advor chlorotic and Empulse is now as follows. Which diuretic strategy additive to IV loop diuretics is the preferred one in contemporary clinical practice? This is the core of the current debate. Two groups of distinguished authors argue opposing stances. Glyphlosins play a key role in the treatment of HF. In a fast-track clinical research article entitled Heart Failure, Peripheral Artery Disease and Dapaglyphlosin A Patient-Led Metroanalysis of Dapa HF and Deliver Jawad Butt and colleagues from the University of Glasgow in Scotland in the United Kingdom indicate that because an increased risk of amputation with canaglyphlosin was reported in the CANVAS trials, there has been a concern about the safety of glyphlosins in patients with peripheral artery disease, or PAD, who are at higher risk of amputation. A patient-level pooled analysis of the DAPA-HF and DELIVER trials, which evaluated the efficacy and safety of DAPA-glyphlosin in patients with HF with reduced and mildly reduced preserved ejection fraction respectively, was conducted. In both trials, the primary outcome was the composite of worsening HF or cardiovascular death 
an amputation was a pre-specified safety outcome. PAD was reported in 809 of the 11,005 patients, or 7.4%. Median follow-up was 22 months. The rate of the primary outcome per 100 person years was higher in PAD patients than that in non-PAD patients. The benefits of dapagliflozin on the primary outcome was consistent in patients with PAD, hazard ratio or HR, 0.71, and without PAD, HR 0.80, P for interaction equaling 0.39. Amputations, while more frequent in PAD patients, were not more common with dapagliflozin compared with placebo, irrespective of PAD status. With PAD, placebo 4.2% versus dapagliflozin 3.7%, no PAD, Placebo 0.4% versus dapagliflozin 0.4%. P for interaction equaling 1.00. The authors conclude that the risk of worsening HF or cardiovascular death is higher in patients with PAD, as is the risk of amputation. The benefits of dapagliflozin are consistent in patients with and without PAD, and dapagliflozin does not increase the risk of amputation. The contribution is accompanied by an editorial by Bruce Neal and Claire Arnott from the George Institute for Global Health in Sydney, Australia. The authors conclude that the balance of evidence across diverse populations, including those with type 2 diabetes, HF and chronic kidney disease, or CKD, indicates strong protective effects from the use of sodium glucose cotransporter 2, or SGLT2, inhibitors with serious harms caused infrequently. In regard to amputation risk specifically, the likelihood that SGLT2 inhibitors increase risk is further lowered by this report. Collaborative HF care involving clinicians, patients and the breadth of health system stakeholders will optimise care and enhance guideline-directed uptake of HF therapy, which will in many cases involve the prescription of an SGLT2 inhibitor. But et al. have presented a powerful case for the safety and utility of this drug class in the highest risk HF patients, those with PAD. This is a welcome and timely addition to the literature, with important implications for this patient subset in particular, but also the much wider group of people now eligible for SGLT2 inhibitor therapy. There is a growing interest in cardiac amyloidosis. In a clinical research article entitled TC99M Labelled Bone Scintigraphy in Suspected Cardiac Amyloidosis, Mohamed Umayyad Rauf and colleagues from the University College London in the United Kingdom perform evaluation of widely embraced bone scintigraphy-based non-biopsy diagnostic criteria, or NBDC, for ATTR amyloid cardiomyopathy, or ATTR-CM, in clinical practice and to refine serum-free light chain, or SFLC, ratio cutoffs that reliably exclude monoclonal gammopathy, or MG. This was a multinational retrospective study of 3,354 patients with suspected or histologically proven cardiac amyloidosis, or CA, 
referred to specialist centres from 2015 to 2021. Evaluations included radionuclide bone scintigraphy, serum and urine immunofixation, SFLC assay, estimated glomerular filtration rate, or EGFR, measurement, and echocardiography. 79% of patients with perogeny grade 2 or 3 radionuclide scans fulfilled MBDC for ATTRCM through absence of a serum or urine monoclonal protein on immunofixation, together with an SFLC ratio falling within revised cutoffs incorporating EGFR. 403 of these patients had amyloid on biopsy, all of which were ATTR type, and their survival was comparable with that of non-biopsied ATTRCM patients, P equaling 0.10. Grade 0 radionuclide scans were present in 1,091 patients, of whom 284, or 26%, had CA, confirmed as AL-type, or ALCA, in 276, or 97%, and as ATTRCM in only one case with an extremely rare TTR variant. Among 183 patients with grade 1 radionuclide scans, 122 had monoclonal gammopathy, of whom 106 had ALCA. 60 of 61 without monoclonal gammopathy had ATTRCM. The authors conclude that the NBDC for ATTRCM are highly specific. Diagnostic performance is further refined here using new cutoffs for SFLC ratio in patients with CKD. A grade 0 radionuclide scan excludes ATTRCM and occurs in most patients with ALCA. Grade 1 scans in patients with CA and no monoclonal gammopathy are strongly suggestive of early ATTR type, but require urgent histological corroboration. This manuscript is accompanied by an editorial by Sharmila Dobala from the Harvard Medical School in Boston, Massachusetts, USA. Dobala concludes by noting that Ralph et al. have successfully validated the high specificity of the current algorithm for the NBDC of ATTR-CM. Through the use of EGFR-adjusted kappa-lambda ratios, their results have expanded the indications for 99MTC PYP-DPD-HMDP cardiac single-photon emission computed tomography, or SPECT, to diagnose ATTRCM in patients with isolated FLC abnormality and have supported the current recommendations for further evaluation, including cardiac magnetic resonance imaging, or MRI, and endomyocardial biopsy, despite the negative scans in patients with clinical and imaging findings suggestive of amyloidosis. In the near future, emerging techniques such as positron emission tomography or PET, stroke computed tomography, or CT, with amyloid targeting tracers, are expected to provide non-biopsy diagnosis in patients with suspected CA of any type, including ATTR, AL, and rare forms of amyloidoses. The 2021 Chronic Kidney Disease Epidemiology Collaboration, or CKD-EPI equation, combining creatinine and cystatin C, 
provides a better estimation of GFR compared with the creatinine-only equation. In a clinical research article entitled Importance of Cystatin C in Estimating Glomerular Filtration Rate, the Paradigm HF Trial, Paolo Tolomeo and colleagues from the BHF Glasgow Cardiovascular Research Centre in the United Kingdom looked into this issue. The CKD-EPI-creatinine-cystatin-C equation, or creatinine-cystatin, was compared with the creatinine-only, or creatinine, equation, in a subpopulation of the Paradigm HF trial. Patients were categorised according to difference in EGFR using two equations. Group 1, less than minus 10 millilitres per minute per 1.73 metres squared, i.e. creatinine-cystatin more than 10 millilitres per minute lower than creatinine, group 2 greater than minus 10 and less than 10 millilitres per minute per 1.73 metres squared, and group 3 greater than 10 millilitres per minute per 1.73 metres squared, i.e. creatinine-cystatin more than 10 millilitres per minute higher than creatinine. Compared with creatinine, Creatinine-cystatin led to a substantial reclassification of CKD stages. Overall, 11% and 18% of patients were reallocated to a better and worse EGFR category, respectively. Compared with patients in Group 2, those in Group 1, lower EGFR with creatinine-cystatin, had higher mortality, and those in Group 3, higher EGFR with creatinine-cystatin, had lower mortality. An increasing difference in EGFR, due to lower EGFR with creatinine-cystatin compared with creatinine, was associated with increasing elevation of biomarkers, including N-terminal probrain natriuretic peptide and troponin, and worsening Kansas City Cardiomyopathy Questionnaire Clinical Summary Score. The reason why the equations diverged with increasing severity of HF was that creatinine did not rise as steeply as cystatin C. The authors conclude that the CKD-EPI creatinine-only equation may overestimate GFR in sicker patients. The contribution is accompanied by an editorial by Kevin Daman from the University of Groningen in the Netherlands. Daman notes that every clinician should be aware of the risk and benefits of estimating GFR. Although it may seem important to determine EGFR at regular intervals, it may also make treatment decisions more difficult. It's a fact that patients with lower EGFR are less likely to be started or up-titrated on guideline-directed medical therapy, or GDMT, and these life-saving drugs are often wrongly discontinued when EGFR drops. Second, if EGFR is determined, it is important to realise which formula is used and what are the pros and cons of this estimation. Daman recommends not to use different formulas in the same patients as these are not interchangeable. He also recommends appreciating a single EGFR measurement in the context of the entire patient and to acknowledge limitations of the estimation and consider EGFR as a continuous variable, not as an on-off phenomenon. Finally, he recommends being more careful with GDMT when EGFR gets lower and lower, but EGFR alone, by itself, 
is a poor guidance. Treat HF and not EGFR. In a clinical research article entitled Sodium Glucose Co-Transporter 2 Inhibitors versus Citagliptin in Heart Failure and Type 2 Diabetes, an observational cohort study. Eduard Fu and colleagues from the Brigham and Women's Hospital Division of Pharmacoepidemiology and Pharmacoeconomics in Boston, Massachusetts, USA, evaluate the comparative effectiveness of SGLT2 inhibitors versus citagliptin in older adults with HF and type 2 diabetes and investigate whether there were any differences between agents within the SGLT2 inhibitor class or for reduced and preserved ejection fraction. Using Medicare claims data, April 2013 to December 2019, the authors included approximately 16,000 SGLT2 inhibitor initiators versus approximately 43,000 initiators of citagliptin who were greater than or equal to 65 years old and had type 2 diabetes and HF. The primary outcome was a composite of all-cause mortality, hospitalization for HF or HHF, or urgent visit requiring IV diuretics. Secondary outcomes included its individual components. Propensity score fine stratification weighted Cox regression was used to adjust for 100 pre-exposure characteristics. Mean age was 74 years and 50% were women. Initiation of an SGLT2 inhibitor versus citagliptin was associated with a lower risk of the primary composite outcome, HR 0.72. The adjusted HRs were 0.70 for all-cause mortality, 0.64 for HHF, and 0.77 for urgent visits requiring IV diuretics. The authors observed similar associations with the primary composite outcome for all three agents within the SGLT2 inhibitor class, for reduced and preserved ejection fraction, and subgroups based on demographics, comorbidities, and other HF treatments. The authors conclude that in routine US clinical practice, SGLT2 inhibitors demonstrate robust clinical effectiveness in older adults with HF and type 2 diabetes compared with citagliptin, with no evidence of heterogeneity across the SGLT2 inhibitor class or across ejection fraction. The manuscript is accompanied by an editorial by Nikolaus Marx and Dirk Müller-Weiland from the RWTH Aachen University Hospital in Germany. The authors conclude by pointing out that the present study provides another piece in completing the spectrum of data derived from randomized control trials, meta-analyses, registries, and now health claims data. Given the available totality of evidence for the beneficial effects of SGLT2 inhibitor treatment on HF-related endpoints in HF patients with type 2 diabetes, we should now aim to consequently implement this therapy in clinical practice and overcome clinical inertia to reduce morbidity and mortality in this high-risk population. In a clinical research contribution entitled COVID-19 Vaccination-Related Myocarditis, a Korean nationwide study, Kai-hun Kim Chonan and colleagues from the National University Medical School 
in Gwangju, Republic of Korea, present a comprehensive nationwide study on the incidence and outcomes of COVID-19 vaccination-related myocarditis, or VRM. Among 44,276,704 individuals with at least one dose of COVID-19 vaccination, the incidence and clinical courses of VRM cases confirmed by the Expert Adjudication Committee of the Korean Disease Control and Prevention Agency were analysed. COVID-19 VRM was confirmed in 480 cases, 1.08 cases per 100,000 persons. VRM incidence was significantly higher in men than in women, P being less than 0.001, and in mRNA vaccines than in other vaccines, P being less than 0.001. VRM incidence was highest in males between the ages of 12 and 17 years, 5.29 cases per 100,000 persons, and lowest in females over 70 years, 0.16 cases per 100,000 persons. Severe VRM was identified in 95 cases, 19.8% of total VRM vaccinated persons, 85 intensive care unit admissions, 36 fulminant myocarditis, 21 extracorporeal membrane oxygenation therapy, 1 heart transplantation, and 21 deaths, or 4.4%. 8 out of 21 deaths were sudden cardiac death, or SCD, attributable to VRM proved by an autopsy, and all cases of SCD attributable to VRM were aged under 45 years and received mRNA vaccines. The authors conclude by pointing out that although COVID-19 VRM is rare and shows relatively favourable clinical courses, severe VRM is found in approximately 20% of all VRM cases. In a translational research article entitled Takotsubo Syndrome is a Coronary Microvascular Disease Experimental Evidence Peng Dong and colleagues from the Northeast Ohio Medical University in Rootstown, Ohio, USA note that Takotsubo Syndrome, or TTS, is a conundrum without consensus about the cause. Vascular KV1.5 channels connect coronary blood flow to myocardial metabolism, and in the murine model, their deletion mimics the phenotype of coronary microvascular dysfunction. To determine if TTS is related to coronary microvascular disease, or CMD, wild type, or WT, KV1.5 knockout, and TG KV1.5 knockout, KV1.5 knockout with smooth muscle-specific expression of KV1.5 channels, mice were studied following transaortic constriction, or TAC. Measurements of left ventricular, or LV, fractional shortening, or FS, in the base and apex, and myocardial blood flow, or MBF, were obtained with standard and contrast echocardiography. RNA deep sequencing was performed on the LV apex and base from wild type and KV1.5 knockout mice, control and transaortic constriction. Myocardial blood flow was increased with Chrominar or by smooth muscle expression of KV1.5 channels in the TG KV1.5 knockout mice. 
Transaortic constriction induced apical ballooning in KV1.5 knockout mice, shown as negative fractional shortening, P being less than 0.05 versus base, which was not observed in wild-type KV1.5 knockout with chrominar or TG KV1.5 knockout mice. Following transaortic constriction in KV1.5 knockout mice, myocardial blood flow was lower in the LV apex than in the base. Increasing myocardial blood flow with chrominar or in TG KV1.5 knockout mice normalized perfusion and function between LV apex and base, P equaling NS. Dong et al. conclude that abnormalities in flow regulation between LV apex and base cause TTS. When perfusion is normalized between the two regions, normal ventricular function is restored. The contribution is accompanied by an editorial by Christian Tamblin and Alessandro Candreva from the Zurich University Hospital in Switzerland. The authors conclude that Dong et al. should be congratulated for this elegant preclinical study proposing both a novel disease model and a promising therapeutical solution. TTS reversal with timely systemic treatment with pharmacological hyperemia appeared to be promising both theoretically and in animal models. While systemic or local adverse effects need to be taken into account, especially in those TTS cases where a benign clinical course is expected, e.g. associated with psychophysical stress, a pharmacological intervention able to reverse the severe ventricular dysfunction without impacting on systemic arterial tone could represent a valid aid in the TTS cases complicated with cardiac shock. Further clinical studies inspired by the author's results will help in defining treatment strategies in TTS. The issue is also complemented by two discussion forum contributions. In a commentary entitled, To screen or not to screen? That is the question. Karl Johann Hansen, Jakob Zwelt Hansen and Peder Emil Warming from the Copenhagen University Hospital Riggs Hospitalet in Denmark comment on the recent publication Value of Screening for the Risk of Sudden Cardiac Death in Young Competitive Athletes by Patrizio Sato and colleagues from the Sports Medicine Unit in Treviso, Italy. Sato et al. respond in a separate comment. The editors hope that this issue of the European Heart Journal will be of interest to its listeners.